Chapter 6 of Rebecca of Sunnybrook Farm. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Rebecca of Sunnybrook Farm by Kate Douglas Wiggin. Chapter 6 Sunshine in a Shady Place. The little schoolhouse on the hill had its moments of triumph as well as its scenes of tribulation but it was fortunate that rebecca had her books and her new acquaintances to keep her interested and occupied or life would have gone heavily for her that first summer in riverboro she tried to like her aunt miranda the idea of loving her had been given up at the moment of meeting but failed ignominiously in the attempt she was a very faulty and passionately human child with no aspirations towards being an angel of the house but she had a sense of duty and a desire to be good, respectably, decently good. Whenever she felt below this self-imposed standard, she was miserable. She did not like to be under her aunt's roof, eating bread, wearing clothes, and studying books provided by her, and dislike her so heartily all the time. She felt instinctively that this was wrong and mean, and whenever the feeling of remorse was strong within her, she made a desperate effort to please her grim and difficult relative. But how could she succeed when she was never herself in her Aunt Miranda's presence? The searching look of the eyes, the sharp voice, the hard, knotty fingers, the thin, straight lips, the long silences, the front piece that didn't match her hair, the very obvious parting that seemed sewed in with linen thread on black net, there was not a single item that appealed to Rebecca. There are certain narrow, unimaginative, and autocratic old people who seem to call out the most mischievous and sometimes the worst traits in children. Miss Miranda, had she lived in a populous neighborhood, would have had her doorbell pulled, her gate tied up, or dirt traps set in her garden paths. The Simpson twins stood in such awe of her that they could not be persuaded to come to the side door even when Miss Jane held gingerbread cookies in her outstretched hands. It is needless to say that Rebecca irritated her aunt with every breath she drew. She continually forgot and started up the front stairs because it was the shortest route to her bedroom. She left the dipper on the kitchen shelf instead of hanging it up over the pail. She sat in the chair the cat liked best. She was willing to go on errands, but often forgot what she was sent for. She left the screen doors ajar so that flies came in. Her tongue was ever in motion. She sang or whistled when she was picking up chips. She was always messing with flowers, putting them in vases, pinning them on her dress, and sticking them in her hat. Finally, she was an everlasting reminder of her foolish, worthless father, whose handsome face and engaging manner had so deceived Aurelia, and perhaps, if the facts were known, others besides Aurelia. The Randalls were aliens. They had not been born in Riverboro, nor even in York County. Miranda would have allowed, on compulsion, that in the nature of things, a large number of persons must necessarily be born outside this sacred precinct, but she had her opinion of them, and it was not a flattering one. 
Now, if Hannah had come, Hannah took after the other side of the house. She was all Sawyer. Poor Hannah, that was true. Hannah spoke only when spoken to, instead of first, last, and all the time. Hannah at fourteen was a member of the church. Hannah liked to knit. Hannah was probably, or would have been, a pattern of all the smaller virtues. Instead of which, here was this black-haired gypsy, with eyes as big as cartwheels, installed as a member of the household. What sunshine in a shady place was Aunt Jane to Rebecca? Aunt Jane, with her quiet voice, her understanding eyes, her ready excuses, in these first difficult weeks, when the impulsive little stranger was trying to settle down into the brick house ways. She did learn them, in part, and by degrees, and the constant fitting of herself to these new and difficult standards of conduct seemed to make her older than ever for her years. The child took her sewing and sat beside Aunt Jane in the kitchen, while Aunt Miranda had the post of observation at the sitting-room window. Sometimes they would work on the side porch, where the clematis and woodbine shaded them from the hot sun. To Rebecca, the lengths of brown gingham were interminable. She made hard work of sewing, broke the thread, dropped her thimble into the syringa bushes, pricked her finger, wiped the perspiration from her forehead, could not match the checks, puckered the seams. She polished her needles to nothing, pushing them in and out of the emery strawberry, but they always squeaked. Still, Aunt Jane's patience held good, and some small measure of skill was creeping into Rebecca's fingers, fingers that held pencil, paintbrush, and pen so cleverly and were so clumsy with the dainty little needle. When the first brown gingham frock was completed, the child seized what she thought an opportune moment and asked her Aunt Miranda if she might have another color for the next one. I bought a whole piece of the brown, said Miranda laconically. That'll give you two more dresses with plenty for new sleeves and to patch and let down with and be more economical. I know, but Mr. Watson says he'll take back part of it and let us have pink and blue for the same price. Did you ask him? Yes, ma'am. It was none of your business. I was helping Emma Jane choose aprons and didn't think you'd mind which color I had. Pink keeps clean just as nice as brown, and Mr. Watson says it'll boil without fading. Mr. Watson's a splendid judge of washing, I guess. I don't approve of children being rigged out in fancy colors, but I'll see what your Aunt Jane thinks. I think it would be all right to let Rebecca have one pink and one blue gingham said Jane. A child gets tired of sewing on one color. It's only natural she should long for a change. Besides, she'd look like a charity child always wearing the same brown with a white apron, and it's dreadful unbecoming to her. Handsome is as handsome does, say I. Rebecca never'll come to grief along of her beauty, that's certain, and there's no use in humoring her to think about her looks. I believe she's vain as a peacock now, without anything to be vain of. She's young and attracted to bright things, that's all. I remember well enough how I felt at her age. You was considerable of a fool at her age, Jane. Yes, I was, thank the Lord. I only wish I'd known how to take a little of my foolishness along with me, as some folks do, 
to brighten my declining years. There finally was a pink gingham, and when it was nicely finished, Aunt Jane gave Rebecca a delightful surprise. She showed her how to make pretty trimming of narrow white linen tape by folding it in pointed shapes and sewing it down very flat with neat little stitches. It'll be good fancy work for you, Rebecca, for your Aunt Miranda won't like to see you always reading in the long winter evenings. Now, if you think you can baste two rows of white tape round the bottom of your pink skirt and keep it straight by the checks, I'll stitch them on for you and trim the waist and sleeves with pointed tape trimming, so the dress will be real pretty for second best. Rebecca's joy knew no bounds. I'll face like a house of fire, she exclaimed. It's a thousand yards round that skirt, as well I know, having hemmed it, but I could sew pretty trimming on it if it was from here to Milltown. Oh, do you think Aunt Mirandy will ever let me go to Milltown with Mr. Cobb? He's asked me again, you know. But one Saturday I had to pick strawberries, and another it rained, and I don't think she really approves of my going. It's twenty-nine minutes past four, Aunt Jane, and Alice Robinson has been sitting under the currant bushes for a long time waiting for me. Can I go and play? Yes, you may go, and you'd better run as far as you can out behind the barn, so to your noise won't distract your Aunt Mirandy. I see Susan Simpson and the twins and Emma Jane Perkins hiding behind the fence. Rebecca leaped off the porch, snatched Alice Robinson from under the currant bushes, and what was much more difficult, succeeded by means of a complicated system of signals in getting Emma Jane away from the Simpson party and giving them the slip altogether. They were much too small for certain pleasurable activities planned for that afternoon, but they were not to be despised for they had the most fascinating dooryard in the village. In it, in bewildering confusion, were old sleighs, pungs, horse rakes, hogsheads, settees without backs, bedsteads without heads, in all stages of disability, and never the same on two consecutive days. Mrs. Simpson was seldom at home, and even when she was, had little concern as to what happened on the premises. A favorite diversion was to make the house into a fort, gallantly held by a handful of American soldiers against a besieging force of the British Army. Great care was used in apportioning the parts, for there was no disposition to let anybody win but the Americans. Seesaw Simpson was usually made commander-in-chief of the British Army, and a limp and uncertain one he was, capable, with his contradictory orders and his fondness for the extreme rear, of leading any regiment to an inglorious death. Sometimes the long-suffering house was a log hut, and the brave settlers defeated a band of hostile Indians, or occasionally were massacred by them. But in either case, the Simpson house looked, to quote a Riverboro expression, as if the devil had been having an auction in it. Next to this uncommonly interesting playground, as a field of action, came, in the children's opinion, the secret, secret spot. spot. There was a velvety stretch of ground in the Sawyer pasture, which was full of fascinating hollows and hillocks, as well as verdant levels on which to build houses. A group of trees concealed it somewhat from view and flung a grateful shade over the dwellings erected there. It had been hard, though sweet labor, 
to take armfuls of stickins and cut-rounds from the mill to this secluded spot, and that it had been done mostly after supper in the dusk of the evenings gave it a still greater flavor. Here in the soap-boxes hidden among the trees were stored all their treasures. Wee baskets and plates and cups made of burdock balls, bits of broken china for parties, dolls soon to be outgrown, but serving well as characters in all sorts of romances enacted there, deaths, funerals, weddings, christenings. A tall square house of stickins was to be built round Rebecca this afternoon, and she was to be Charlotte Corday, leaning against the bars of her prison. It was a wonderful experience. Standing inside the building with Emma Jane's apron wound about her hair, wonderful to feel that when she leaned her head against the bars, they seemed to turn to cold iron, that her eyes were no longer Rebecca Randall's, but mirrored something of Charlotte Corday's hapless woe. Ain't it lovely? sighed the humble twain, who had done most of the labor but who generously admired the result. I hate to have to take it down, said Alice. It's been such a sight of work. If you think you could move up some stones and just take off the top rows, I could step out over, suggested Charlotte Corday. Then leave the stones, and you two can step down into the prison tomorrow and be the two little princes in the tower, and I can murder you. What princes? What tower? asked Alice and Emma Jane in one breath. Tell us about them. Not now, it's my supper time. Rebecca was a somewhat firm disciplinarian. It would be elegant being murdered by you, <laughs> said Emma Jane loyally. Though you were awful real when you murder. Or we could have Elijah and Alicia for the princes. They'd yell when they was murdered, objected Alice. You know how silly they are at plays, all except Clara Bell. Besides, if we won't show them the secret place, they'll play in it all the time. And perhaps they'd steal things, like their father. They needn't steal just because their father does, argued Rebecca. And don't you ever talk about it before them if you want to be my secret particular friends. My mother tells me never to say hard things about people's own folks to their face. She says nobody can bear it, and it's wicked to shame them for what isn't their fault. Remember Minnie Smelly. Well, they had no difficulty in recalling that dramatic episode, for it had occurred only a few days before and a version of it that would have melted the stoniest heart had been presented to every girl in the village by Minnie Smelly herself, who, though it was Rebecca and not she who came off victorious in the bloody battle of words, nursed her resentment and intended to have revenge. End of chapter 6